Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. Today is the first show for our July Independence Month. My guest is Jason Jones of Vital Farms. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. I'll start with the appetizers shortly, but first, a little news about the future of this show. For a year and a half, The Appropriate Omnivore has been run on the new dissident radio, Green Earth Radio Station. The owners of the station have moved on to other things now. I'll be continuing with the podcast, but won't be having the live stream anymore. I want to take a moment and thank the new distant media owners, Johnny Dam and Rhonda Dick Felice, for everything they've done. It all started a little over three years ago that I was a guest on Rhonda's show, The Good Green Witch. After speaking my mind about why I eat meat, I was encouraged by Rhonda and Johnny to start a blog and then a show about it. I'm forever grateful for their encouragement. They saw what potential I had to be the voice for sustainable and healthy meat eating. I wouldn't have been where I am without them, and they'll always be an important part of this show. The Appropriate Omnivore podcast will continue with every episode being available for listening at theappropriateomnivore.com. You can also find my shows on Stitcher, and you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you won't miss another episode. Now for the appetizers, what's happening in the world of real food. In Michigan, the trial of pig farmer Mark Baker is currently going on. The Michigan Department of Natural Resources wants to fine Mark $700,000 for his 70 illegal pigs being raised in violation of the Invasive Species Act. Supporters of food freedom from around the country are gathering at the Misaki County Courthouse in Lake City, Michigan. While I'm in California as the case is going on, I'm there in spirit supporting Mark Baker's right to farm feral pigs. Next. A report reveals that the majority of our fruits and vegetables come from California. The biggest crops coming from California include artichokes, walnuts, kiwis, plums, celery, garlic, cauliflower, spinach, and carrots. The huge exporting from California is due to the state having the largest output per acre. While it's important that people in the U.S. are able to be fed, this doesn't translate to sustainability. There has to be a model where we can rely more on local produce to fill the population's plates. And finally, the Journal of Biomedical Research published a study linking BPA intake with reduced testosterone. The trial was done by administering BPA orally to rats. The rats were given BPA and found to have lower sperm counts than the control group. Although the effect on rats doesn't always transfer over to what would happen with humans, I personally will continue to play it safe and avoid any food products in aluminum or plastic that contain BPA. And now for the main course. Today is the first show of July. In America in July, we celebrate our independence as a country. On the appropriate omnivore in July, we celebrate our independence as in independent businesses. For my first guest of Independence Month, I'm welcoming back one of my favorites that I've had on before. Jason Jones is the president of Vital Farms a company that sells truly pastured eggs and is one of the most successful businesses in the real food world. Last year, Inc. Magazine listed them as the fastest-growing food company. So here now is Jason to discuss what it takes to thrive as an independent. Jason, it's a pleasure to have you on the show again. Aaron, thank you for having me back. Good to talk to you. Well, we so admire what Vital Farms does. It's a company that sells in 
food stores nationwide and you sell a product of eggs that's truly pastured. It's not these ones that are labeled things such as free range or cage free and a lot of those, those are just labels. And you find a lot of these ones that are labeled like cage free. It means, well, they're not in cages, but they're just living in indoor cramped conditions and Vital Farms has a product of eggs with chickens raised outdoors, which is how really all eggs should be. Yeah, we think so. Uh, we've come along in the last four or five years, and uh, the way that we describe our eggs is that they are pasture-raised. And what we mean by that is the girls genuinely are outside all day, every day, except in the most inclement of weather, of course, if there's snow or ice on the ground. But, um, yeah, that's what we're trying to kind of carve out, and we don't want this term to go the way of free range. You mentioned already that... Uh, Anybody who looks into the egg industry can they learn this pretty early on is that free range may or may not mean a whole lot, and so we're trying to build up definition around the term pasture raised and uh, for us, that means the birds are outdoors with indoor access. When I say pasture raised, I am always scared of that that I'm just saying a label and what does it mean? But I think your business has done a good job of defining it, and I think also Whole Foods, which has been a big ally of yours since the beginning. They also do a good job of that when you go to their egg section at Whole Foods and they describe what pasture-raised is. Definitely. They've been a great partner for us because they focus a lot on education. And we put a lot of energy into that on our side, whether it's the end customer, of course, or everyone between our farms and that transaction at the eggshell for the register. Our distributors, the regional-level people at places like Whole Foods, and also the, the people who are stocking the shelves are hugely important. And when they really get the difference in what we're doing, it uh, of course, it really helps the sales-wise, but it helps uh, educate the consumer because when you go to the, uh, the exit, some of these eggshells are 20 feet long, and you can have, it seems like, 50 different options staring at you at the face and I've literally spent a lot of time in grocery stores, and I watch the purchase decision in process. And for someone who isn't well well informed coming uh, coming up to that shelf, it's a really daunting thing. All these labels are competing for your attention. There's all this terminology out there: cage free, free range, organic, pasture raised, uh, veg fed, DHA, omega three. How do you choose? And so when you have advocates there at the store level helping to tell your story and hopefully cut through some of the clutter that's out there, it makes a big difference for your business. Omega-3 is one that you see more now. And I'm interested to know what your opinion is on omega-3 eggs because certainly it sounds good. I mean, we do need omega-3s. Do you think eggs are a source to get omega-3s or do you think it should be obtained somewhere else? They're definitely a fantastic source for that. Um, of course, you don't want to be out of balance with your omega-6s on the other side of that. And it turns out that a pasture-raised egg is naturally higher in the omega-3s that everybody's looking for. That's not because we're supplementing anything in their feed that would yield that, but when they have a more varied diet naturally and they're outside on something meaning- meaningful, real vegetative cover, it doesn't even have to be grass. It can be you know, greens that are growing depending on the season out on your pasture or uh, we'll have squash, just native squashes here in Texas sprouting up everywhere in the spring. 
chicken will eat darn near anything, and uh, they're not vegetarians. They are definitely omnivores. There may be the odd grasshopper or earthworm they, they dig up and spend quite a lot of time scratching around, and that's a natural behavior. We make sure they have plenty of space to, to, um, to do that. When you have the varied diet and the different components, it's not just a largely corn-based feed ration. Um, their more complete diet translates to a higher nutritional content for the end product the egg. And um, so if somebody wanted to increase their omega-3 intake and they're looking to do it uh, through an egg, I don't feel like a, I don't know, it's really a conventionally raised egg in a barn where animal welfare is not a consideration. They're just pumping things like flax seed into the feed that the chickens get. Number one, it's not a very good conversion. Um, you do better to just take some omega-3 supplements and drop them in a smoothie or put them on a salad or something like that as opposed to feeding the chicken, having it go through uh, that conversion through the chicken's body and into the egg. For what went into the feed, you actually get a relatively small amount of increased omega-3s. And so there are more efficient ways to get that um, at our level. So, um, and I know that most of those operations that put that on their label enhance the feed. It's, uh, it's not overall a good quality egg. It's just a, we'll call it a factory farm or barn raised bird. Another thing you brought up was about chickens not being vegetarians. And there's another label which is probably the most misleading, which is vegetarian fed because I don't think there are any eggs you'll find from chickens that are actually vegetarian fed. I mean, they're going to eat any type of critters that they see, whether it's indoor or outdoors. I'm sure there's some across that they eat. No doubt. They uh, are not are not real picky. Uh, there are just a few things that they won't, that they won't eat. It's certain weeds that, that can grow outdoors. I've seen them leave those alone. But pretty much everything else is fair game. And, you know, we mentioned the bugs and uh, earthworms and things. Um, so... It is a misnomer to say that, uh, or I guess to imply that you want your chickens to be vegetarians per se, but the fact is most of them in the U.S. today, if they're not in cages, they're in barns and, and they never go outside. And so all that's offered to them is a feed. But there's a little more to it than that, actually. The, um, the reason that I, the way I understand it, the reason that veg fed would be important is because in some intensive, and I mean, by intensive, I mean a very densely populated conventional barn, uh, <clears throat> the feed that the birds end up getting in order to shave pennies off of the cost per dozen. Um, producers can put some pretty nasty stuff into the feed that the chickens eat. That's your biggest expense as an egg farmer is the feed the chickens have. And if you can cut up even a couple bucks per ton on that, then that could could mean quite a lot of money to the bottom line. And so what happens is, unfortunately, um, you'll have things like uh, feather meal, um, bone meal, even blood meal. And this tissue is, these materials are from um, the, dead, the dead chickens, from those operations. They'll actually get ground up and put back into the feed as a very cheap source of protein. Because to produce an egg about every... 28 hours or so, 
like a, an egg layer who's in her peak, it requires quite a lot of energy and protein going into the chicken to crank out that egg six times a week. And if you can, again, save money on the protein content of your feed, which actually has to be quite high, um, a lot of producers will, will do that. And so they can effectively make the chickens cannibals of of themselves. And it's a, a pretty gross thing. And uh, it's also unhealthy from a food safety standpoint. A lot of salmonella, um, different other problems that you can have in a conventionally raised situation really result from contamination in the feed, in addition to the, the squalor that they're living in as their external environment. But um, anyway, that's even more reason to avoid the whole, uh, I don't know, or to not give a whole lot of credence to the veg fed thing because um, it's, uh, in actuality, it's, it can be a pretty, a pretty bad situation in a lot of these conventionally raised barns. Certainly. And I know that as part of your supplemental feed, you explained that you do give some soy, but you found that there hasn't been really any effect on the hens or the eggs by giving them soy. Yeah, that's correct. And this goes back to the protein consideration. They have to have 17 or 18% protein in their diet in order to produce eggs prolifically. Um, when you're doing this for a business, you need to make sure that that's happening. And to achieve a high protein level in the feed, um, the best ingredient out there, for better or for worse, is soy. It's about 42, maybe 43% protein, I believe, and that raises the overall level of the blended feed to where it needs to be at 17 or 18%. And so I understand why people would choose to avoid soy and in our vial farms eggs and pasture verde eggs, this is certified organic soy. So um, that's uh, um, something that we would, because of uh, estrogen mimicking qualities and things, um, I understand those concerns. But what you said is the case. If you were trying to avoid soy on a commercial level where you're buying tons of feed at a time, it's hard to cost-effectively replace that protein level that you need to run your business. And uh, there are a couple of options out there I've seen. There's a like a coconut meal replacement that is just very, very expensive. And if we were to, if there was adequate supply of that, I think if we switched to it, our eggs would probably be around 12 or 14 dollars a dozen. <laughs> and yeah, and uh, the other alternative that you see is where a mill will take in fish and crab meal. And obviously it's high protein, but we don't think that, number one, that's something that a chicken would eat in a natural situation. They're not going to have uh, manhaden and crab out on the, you know, on the farm. And it's also an unsustainable thing. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of the, the manhaden situation. It's a small bait fish that's, you know, nothing that we as humans would eat, but it's a very vital link in the oceanic food chain. And basically to feed livestock, it's become harvested in really great quantities, and it's throwing off the balance of the ecosystems in our oceans. And in addition to that, it can make your eggs taste fishy if they get too much of it in our feed. So, you know, uh, needing so much protein, it's... Uh, 
it makes us a little bit beholden as egg producers to soy, I'm afraid. But again, we're using certified organic, non-GMO soy. I don't, I don't know. I'm not aware of any studies that would that would actually tell you how much of any of the negative effects of of a soy are translating through to the egg. I mean, it undergoes quite quite a processing inside the body of the chicken, and so. Um, I don't know. I avoid soy in other forms, in all other forms, basically. But we eat our eggs all the time. Of course, we're a little biased, but we've noticed zero negative effects at all. Similar with me, I try to, for the most part, avoid soy, or at least certainly the GMO soy and the unfermented soy. And, I mean, I've heard even Sally Fallon, founder of the West Nate Price Foundation, she's had trouble finding soy-free eggs, so she's even eaten some soy eggs, running one of the biggest opposers of soy. And similarly, Kayla Daniel, who's the vice president of Weston Price, and she wrote the book, The Whole Soy Story. So she's one of the foremost experts on soy. She's actually said, unless you have a soy allergy, you don't need to worry about getting eggs that are soy free. Well, we'll have to look that one up. It'd be good for us to have as a reference because we are in constant contact with an awful lot of our customers being transparent and education-centered as we are. We get a lot of emails, phone calls, questions on Facebook, and we answer every single one of them. Um, and possibly the biggest question that we get or the most common question is about the soy. Do you feed your chicken soy? And, you know, we'll explain this that we do, this is why we do, it's a function of protein, and there are no good alternatives. And most people understand that, and I don't think they're worried too much about it. Um, again, as you said, it's not like you're eating an unfermented or GMO soy directly into your own body. It's, it's had quite a journey getting broken down at the molecular level to form this egg. I would really love, uh, if you could send me that study, I'd love to have that as a reference, though. Oh, certainly you should check out the book, The Whole Soy Story, and also there's a Facebook page run by Weston Price called Soiler. In addition, I recommend going back to January when I interviewed Kayla Daniel. And in fact, we talked about that in depth about the issue of soy and eggs and what to choose between, say, you have a soy-free egg, but you don't know how well the chickens were raised, if they were truly pastured, or if it is one of those cage-free, free-range chickens versus a truly pastured egg but it was fed some soy. I mean, personally, I think the most important thing is that you're getting an egg from a chicken that was pastured, raised outdoors, and I would also add non-GMO fed. Definitely, definitely. And, of course, when it's certified organic, that implies uh, by the USDA standard that it is non-GMO. And so um, with the the popularity of of the non-GMO question with what, happened in California or didn't happen, unfortunately, earlier this year, um, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of attention being paid to, is it, you know, non-GMO, and people need to know, and so we'll take this form to, to get this message out there. If something is certified USDA organic, it also means that it is non-GMO sourced. Um, it's a little confusing. You have all these labels and shields and merit badges on products these days. We're finding ourselves you know, having quite a lot of them. You feel like a Boy Scout when you design your 
label anymore. You've got all these things you need to put on there. And, you know, non-GMO is one of them anymore, and it's not going away. So uh, you will see a, a label with certified USDA organic as well as, let's say, the non-GMO project, which is the most recognized non-GMO shield at this point. And, um, you know, they're, they're doing a great, a great thing. I think uh, I'm actually working with them to get some of our eggs certified with, with that label as well. And we're working pretty pretty hard on that. Um, they're quite busy these days with the Whole Foods announcement earlier in February or March when it was, um, you know, looking ahead to having GMOs labeled by 2018. Um, I know the non-GMO project folks are great people. They're just really really slammed right now. There's a lot of companies like myself um, trying to get their their logo on there, but uh, you know. Uh, it's it's a massive effort. People, um, you know, being a, a strong supporter of Whole Foods, obviously, I want to take that for them for a minute. They're getting flack all over the internet and radio and things about, well, why are you taking so long in order to enact this standard where we can see what we're what we're buying if it has GMOs in it or not? And of course, as a consumer and shopper myself, I understand that, and that's the way I feel too. But also as a producer. This is a wholesale change. Um, entire supply chains have to be really reworked in order to create enough supply of the non-GMO products. Um, there's just not enough of them today, and um, it, it's just going to take an awful lot of time. This goes down to the commodity level. You know, farmers who are growing this corn and soy, not just in places like Iowa and Kansas, but across the world. A lot of our products today, um, we're, people are bringing in feed from all over the world, be it Brazil, China, et cetera, because it just takes so much of it. And um, it's hard to, you know, to find non-GMO commodities today if you wanted to, let's say, produce a non-GMO certified egg, um, if it's not organic. I mean, you can always buy certified organic stuff. It's a lot more expensive than simply non-GMO um, based feed components, but uh, there's just not, a, not enough of it out there today. I think, of course, the market will respond, and um, hopefully, we'll be able to get our hands on on enough of this um, untainted non-GMO commodities going forward. But it is going to take a lot of time. It is. I know that's hard for a lot of people to understand. They all ask why is Whole Foods taking so long. But I know going back to last year when there was the Prop 37. A big argument that the opposition had was that it was going to hurt these companies because they would have to change their labels or if they were going to change to non-GMO ingredients, it would hurt them. So I think giving it some time is good because it kind of addresses that issue of companies not having to change their operation overnight to meet the non-GMO requirements. Yeah, it's a long, long-term proposition, to be sure. Um, so... Let's all just be patient. We all, uh, you know, GMOs, it's a, it's a scary thing. And, you know, with what's recently happened with the GMO wheat, um, you know, things can happen. And I know uh, things like cross-pollination are a real problem. It's, it's not as bad with soy just due to the way the plant grows. But with corn, it can be, you know, pretty tough to find, um, you know, 
commodity that is pure enough and meets all the thresholds that, uh, for instance, the non-genome project would set out. So, um, it, it'll take a while, I think, for farmers and producers to respond to this, but hopefully we'll get there. Right. I know your company, you're one of the first that's taken the non-GMO pledge. Yeah, we, um, you know, we do have most of our, uh, most of our products are um, certified organic. The, the Vital Farms eggs, the same egg that goes to basically every other grocer except Whole Foods is called Pasture Verde. You can find that at uh, um, soon-to-be places like uh, the Natural Grocer or Vitam Cottage, uh, Earth Fair. Uh, the fresh market. Um, we do have a non, uh, it's, a, it's not certified organic, but we are in the process of taking that non-GMO, as you said. A um, couple of labels out there in Texas at HEBs, you can find uh, our, our brand called the Texas Chicken Ranch, which actually just recently launched in HEB stores around central Texas. Um, and we have another product called uh, Alfresco Farms, play on uh, Alfresco meaning outdoors. Um, nice. Those find it, found it uh, the fresh market. And, and again, it's a, it's a long process to get yourself certified as non-GMO. We're in the middle of it. It just takes many, many months, and there's kind of a lot to it. So, uh, yeah, we, we're, we think it's really important. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a journey we're on. I think we can get frustrated and feel like things aren't moving quickly enough. But the good news is the awareness is growing. People are more and more are asking, you know, what is it that's in our food that we're putting into our bodies and feeding our children? And long-term, I think we're headed in the right direction. I think so, too. And we were talking about Whole Foods and about going GMO labeling by 2018. And Whole Foods, I think their motto well represents what Independent Month is about. Whole Foods founder John Mackey recently wrote the book Conscious Capitalism, which I think is the key to success of an independent business. And I know that you're part of the Conscious Capitalism organization that John Mackey has started. Yeah, we adhere to uh, the very same principles. And in essence, what it is, is it's seeing your business as built upon a, a, a stakeholder model as opposed to just being about the bottom line and servicing shareholders and generating profits You know, for those who invest in that kind of thing. You know, in contrast to that, the stakeholder model that John writes about. And, uh, you know, there are, I guess, other flavors of this same concept out there. But it's it's viewing every, um, really every part of your business, whether it is your suppliers, and in our case that would be farmers, or even the companies from whom we buy our, our egg cartons, for example, or the feed at the mill level, to your customers, which are, of course, the people who buy the product off the shelf and your distributors in between you and them, you know, people at Whole Foods at a regional level who will decide to bring in a product in, for example, the Pacific Northwest region. You know, they had to make that decision to bring in our product, and, you know, without their support, um, that wouldn't have happened. Um, to, uh, of course, your employees, and as well as people who invested in the company, it could be the founders or Bankers who, you know, took a flyer on you and said, okay, I think this idea could work. Um, you know, another stakeholder that is just as important is the, you know, our environment. What kind of impact are we having on our soils and our waterways and the communities where our farms are located? So you really view all of these stakeholders equally. And it's not about elevating one over the other. 
Um, again, what a lot of us were taught uh, growing up was that uh, you know companies and corporations are there to maximize shareholder value. And while yes, that does have have to happen, uh, part of sustainability is profitability. Um, we can't depend on subsidies and uh, you know just going further and further into debt to prolong an unprofitable business. That is not sustainable by definition. But it's not just about profit, and it's also an assumption of the conscious capitalism model, uh, really, that's probably not a, a great way to put it. It's the core belief is that if you are considering all of these stakeholders equally in your place in the world, how you're impacting it, then the profits will follow. And there are just a ton of examples of you know, world-class companies who, who operate fundamentally uh, with this as their worldview, and they're quite successful as a result. So we love that philosophy. Um, and have tried to build our young company around those principles too. And another way I've heard your company describe is as a food hub model. What we're describing there is we try to be, you have to gain efficiencies in order to keep your costs down and make your products affordable. And also to be able to, you know, have enough margin in there to, to pay people well enough for doing business with you. For example, first and foremost are our farmers. We need them to make a really good amount of money for for a dozen eggs we buy from them because so much goes into it. Uh, it's a lot more labor involved, a lot more land, a lot more soil management, things that conventional growers don't have to worry about because the only ground they're worried about is, you know, the concrete slab that their birds are walking around all the time. Um, a lot more goes into our model. But we try to locate ourselves in areas where, um, you know, there are, there are, first of all, the, the climate and the weather have to be commensurate with keeping an animal outside basically year-round. So there's only so far north that we could ever go. Um, so we will try to um, keep our production as small-scale as we can, meaning we can work with very small farmers as long as we are picking up some efficiencies elsewhere, like on the processing side, so they don't all have to have their own egg washing machine and um, worry about processing uh, and shipping and packing and storing. We need them to just focus on producing the best egg, making sure the bird has it great, you know, it's having a good life, that the pastures are in good shape, that we have meaningful vegetative cover. Um, so we centralize processing or, you know, washing, grading, packing, and shipping of the eggs in places where we have several farmers kind of in a short radius around uh, that location. And we have these hubs in the Arkansas and Oklahoma area, Texas, where it all started for us. Uh, we have production in Georgia now, and I'm happy to be able to announce we're moving into California. This is something we've been trying to do for a long time. Um, you know, you it helps you to be as close to your markets as possible. So part of this is self-serving in that, um, you know, we can reduce freight costs if we're not shipping an egg from Georgia to Los Angeles, for example. And um, so we're trying to diversify ourselves regionally as best we can. And we have been looking for a long time for good farmers to work with in California, and we have thankfully found them. Um, we will be uh, about half an hour or so outside of, of Orange County in Southern Cal, 
and look for our eggs in Whole Foods markets later this year that uh, save auto farms, but they're also going to save farms in California. And really proud of of, of uh, being able to find some great farmers to work with over there. Well, I look forward to seeing that, and certainly we love to announce that on our show when those are released. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll definitely let you know. It's probably going to be uh, sometime in the third quarter. Well, that'd be great, because certainly we're done out of Los Angeles, and so we have a lot of listeners in that area that I'm sure would be excited to look for those. So we'll be talking more with Jason Jones of Vital Farms, but first, a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flower Company offers organic sprouted grains and flowers for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. And for the month of July, you get free shipping on orders of 15 pounds or more. Go to the website, organicsproutedflour.net, or call toll-free at 877-401-6837 to start shopping. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea States Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Alea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Alea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email. K-A-R-L at oleastates.com. And we're back. You're listening to The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm speaking with Jason Jones of Vital Farms as our first guest for Independent Month. So, Jason, we've been talking about some of the projects that Vital Farms has been involved with, such as the non-GMO project and the Conscious Capitalism Organization. And one of the other things that I was very amazed that you guys were involved with as well was a campaign to save factory farmed laying hens. And what made you decide to get involved with this worthy cause? Well, um, you know, there's a lot of, of concern out there for the welfare of, of our animals, obviously. And um, we, one of the questions we commonly get is what happens to the chickens when they stop laying? You know, uh, I think some people have the, you know, I don't know how realistic is it is, but the expectation that, you know, they just uh, go to kind of an old an old hen's home somewhere where they kind of live out their, their, uh, the rest of the day quietly. And, you know, um, unfortunately, uh, it's, it's, it's not that way, but everything is done in, in a very humane um, and respectful manner. You know, we, we look at these animals and they really work quite hard for us. Um, really we're there to support them and, and what they do naturally and, and we benefit greatly from um you know what they are what they are providing for us so um you know we take seriously when it's time to 
rotate a block out. You know, everything is, is done in as humane a way as possible, and we also like to understand what happens to them after that time. And so um, currently with uh, some of our farms, we will just sell older laying hens right on Craigslist. You know, they can go and uh, they still lay for quite a long time, just not efficiently enough to be part of our business model anymore. But uh, there's quite a few, for example, where I am in Austin, I don't know how many uh, hundreds of, of uh, former Vital Farms laying hens are out there in backyards uh, all across town, three to five at a time. And, you know, we, we'd like to see that. Um, but where most of our birds do go is to a... Um, uh, uh, they, they are processed at a um, meat facility, and that meat is, a lot of people think um, that chicken meat is, is spent laying hen. And actually, it's not at all. It's a totally different breed, a totally separate operation. But um, these spent layers can go to a processing facility, be um, uh, broken down, and they are put into uh, taste boxes at about 10 uh, kilos, and then they're shipped over to uh, Africa, west of North Africa primarily. And the reason it's in a 10-kilo box is because that's the weight that uh, the women there can comfortably carry on their head. And they actually value the meat quite highly as opposed to the U.S. market where you want this very uh, plump, um, a lot of white meat, you know, very kind of tender and juicy Um the, the African palate is quite different, as it turns out, and they like the much more tough, but actually quite uh, flavorful meat of a you know a, a laying hen, and so um, it's benefiting them. It's uh, you know we feel a good next step for our former layers, and you know we're pretty proud of that. It's it's a really great story, and we think it's helped a lot of people. Oh, wonderful! And are there any other causes that you're looking at getting involved with in the future? Well, we um, have for about three years now supported the Whole Planet Foundation, and this is a Whole Foods organization, at least it's, uh, yeah, I think all the overhead and infrastructure is provided by Whole Foods, but um, it is a basically a microfinance program um, where small loans are made to um, communities all over the world, um, mainly third world situations, and they lend the money to the women in the communities to start their own businesses. Um, it could be $50 that goes to help uh, a lady in Haiti purchase a goat, for example, or, you know, um, equipment to, you know, make some um, handmade crafts, jewelry, that type of thing. And, um, it's just quite successful. It's a, it's a super efficient method of lending where because Whole Foods is, is footing the, the overhead of the program, um, almost all, if not all, of what you donate actually gets lent and put to work in these communities. And by lending to the women, they've just, uh, they found that that's um, the most effective way to, I guess, ensure that uh, it's actually going to a, a venture that's supporting families, and it's just been hugely successful. Um, 
it's it's uh, something we're really proud to have done. And we were we're three or four years into supporting that program, and this was before Vital Farms had ever turned to profit. But um, because they're doing such great things, uh, you know, the community being one of our important stakeholders, um, the global community in this case, we've been doing it for quite a long time, and are really pleased with with the good things they're able to do through the Whole Planet Foundation. And we've been talking about Whole Foods, which some of the listeners might not know, but Whole Foods is from Austin, like your company is. And there's also a number of great new natural food companies that have been started out of Austin, because I've actually heard that Austin is starting to become the paleo capital. Yeah, you know, Austin is its just one of those places. It's uh, kind of a, a lot like uh, Portland or, you know, Northern Cal Bay Area, I think, where it's pretty progressive in its way of thinking. And it's it's good for business. There's a lot of entrepreneurship going on here. It's it's really a hotbed for a lot of new ideas and, uh, you know, things that are forward-thinking. But it's also, as you said, it's, it's home to, uh, you know, a very strong, uh, not just fitness, you know, but a, an overall holistic, healthy lifestyle, I think. And paleo is something that is, it is here to stay. I mean, there's a lot of diets and fads and things that come along, but I think this is much more of a lifestyle than just a a diet or a way to lose weight or or something like that. A lot of people have a lot of digestive problems and, and, uh, you know, other things they deal with. And um, by eliminating the things that you are taking out through the paleo diet, um, I know my family has been on, you know, at least loosely, on that program for probably six months or so, and it's really, really helped my wife out quite a lot with some, um, you know, gut issues, and, you know, your gut is really where your health begins or, or doesn't, and paleo is great for that, and uh, a lot of people are able to shed a lot of unwanted pounds that way, and, and um, you know, obviously an egg is very paleo-friendly, and so... We love it, and more and more hearing from customers that uh, they really, when you have to take in quite a lot of protein because you're eliminating, um, you know, any gluten and some flours and starches and things, um, you're eating more more protein, and a lot of people are turning to pasture-raised eggs as a you know, top-shelf source of protein that actually, when compared to, uh, you know, other forms of, of protein, thinking of meat mainly, it's quite affordable when you get down to it per ounce and, and per gram. A couple eggs is your protein serving for your meal, and you can have that for maybe a little over a dollar in, in the case of our eggs, and that's that's a bargain. Now you're talking about kind of loosely following the paleo diet, and I know at least for me, I, mean, I followed the Western Price Diet, which is like a cousin of the paleo and the primal diet. I think that is kind of the key to following a successful lifestyle is don't get too rigid about it or I think you might go crazy. I think the best philosophy is Mark Sasan, who runs the very successful Paleo Primal blog, Mark's Daily Apple, he says about going 80-20. Yeah, um, as with a lot of programs, a little moderation actually helps you kind of kind of get through it. And I guess that's uh, probably what you're talking about. I know um, – when we went on paleo, we were very strict for about a month and actually saw huge benefits. But when you go out to eat or you're over at friends' houses or especially when you're traveling, it can be hard to 
to stay as strict because you're not in your own kitchen cooking every meal that you know you went and bought all the ingredients for. And so, I guess not stressing yourself out uh, if you if you miss a meal here or there or have you know um, a, a white flour tortilla for example down here uh, just because that's that's what was available to you. Um, yeah, eighty twenty allows you a little bit of breathing room, and, and you still get most of the benefit, I think. Of course, on the opposite side, although I do follow the 80-20, I have to say I find myself less interested often in eating out because a lot of restaurants don't really follow the type of nutrition that I advocate, and I've kind of just gotten more interested in making a lot of the food myself. How about you? Yeah, definitely. We've been that way really for years, and it's largely to my wife's credit. I mean, I like to cook, but she's, uh, you know, she uh, does most of it. And, um, you know, you know what you're eating that way. And, sure, everybody likes to sit down at a nice restaurant and, you know, um, that that's something that, that is important, I think, every now and then. But uh, you don't know how much, uh, how much butter and sugar and, and uh, stuff that you wouldn't be cooking with went into making it taste so good. And um, I think it's part of the whole lifestyle. I think people in in this overall awareness of what are we putting into our bodies here, um, you know, you you see through to that when you're the one doing the cooking. So um, We've definitely been that way a while, and we've got two small kids now, and it's even more important to us to understand what we're taking in and uh, and also, um, from an ethical sense, what what um, system of agriculture you're supporting, if you will. That That's uh, maybe a, a big thought, but just like Michael Pollan says, every dollar you spend is, is a vote, effectively, for a certain way of producing food. And uh, I think, thankfully, it's it's easier when you are stuck out on the road or when you do want to go out to eat, at least in places uh, like Austin, I know. And I was in Chicago last month, and I'll tell you, just about every place we went for dinner, um, there was a not necessarily a farm-to-table concept, but certainly a, a visibility through to where the ingredients were coming from and I think that's trendy right now, but it's it's just a real positive thing. You know, we source our eggs from this farmer down in Illinois, and I saw a lot of that. We get our grass-fed beef from here, and, you know, it's also organic. And um, it's easier and easier to find stuff that, you know, you are comfortable eating if you're, I guess, of the mindset that, that you're describing. So uh, I know Austin is that way too. So it's... Uh, it, it, from a business sense, we try to capitalize on that because we also sell the restaurants and institutions like universities and um, see a growing business there because um, a lot of times it's, in the case of universities, the young, younger generation is very, very well educated and they want to know what they're eating. And, uh, and again, the restaurants, um, their customers are wanting to know, hey, where did this chicken come from? And um, uh, we're seeing more and more of that, and it's, and it's good for our business as well. That's great about the universities. That makes me feel very, very positive about the future, that the younger generations are into this. And I think that only means that we'll be seeing 
more of this in the future if it's reaching out to the universities and the younger generations. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And I'm very interested, too, in the whole restaurants saying where they source their foods from. And I'm in L.A., which I think is a good city for that, too. It's hard to find one which is perfect as far as the food they serve. I think the best I've found is they used to have a restaurant. Now they're just, for the time, doing farmer's markets, the farmhouse kitchen. They're good. But there are certainly other restaurants which it can be friendly to price paleo primal based on maybe tweaking the orders a little. And I take it that in Austin, there's some, at least some good restaurants that have, if not a perfect model, at least better in terms of the food they serve. Definitely. It's, it's uh, you know, if that's what people want, eventually in time, the market responds. I'm a believer, a believer in capitalism that in that sense. And um, that's what we're seeing. Uh, we were in the Southern California area, uh, for the Expo West show, that's where we last saw you right. in was uh, back in, I guess it was early March in, in Anaheim. And we went to a place, and I'm trying to remember the name, and, and if I can't pull it out, I'll, I'll try to find it before we're wrapping up here. But it was uh, it was something greens. It was... Tender greens? Tender greens, that's it. Yeah, love that uh, restaurant. Tender greens. It, it was, you know, really impressive. And, and you can tell they have a, a really great business model because there are several locations now and I think they've not been around for all that long so that's a fast growing company that is set up almost Chipotle style in the way that you walk through and order um, different proteins, different vegetables but it's very much a farm to table concept. They're talking about where the you know if the fish was sustainably harvested or not, where the chicken was raised and uh, you know the lifestyle that it had was it humanely treated. They're Talking about those things, that, you know, on their menus and at the point of sale, and and uh, you know, it's 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 also just super quality. It's a, it's a good, healthy proteins, a lot of vegetables and greens, um, and and they're really thriving right now. So I think we'll see more and more of that. I think so too. Tender Greens, you're right. They've opened not that long ago, and they started, I believe, up in the LA area, and so already now in the Orange County, and you brought up Chipotle, which I think is another company that's good about sourcing, and it varies from area to area as far as how sustainable the food that Chipotle sources is, because in some areas they do have grass-fed beef, other it's great finished, but any of the meats they have there are better than the others, so Chipotle is, I think, certainly a model of a fast food or fast casual business that is more concerned with the quality of its ingredients and I know they're soon opening a Chinese place similar to the Chipotle, which I'm interested in seeing. Oh, wow. I look forward to that. You know, a lot of times when it's Asian food you're talking about, you're worried about things like MSG, and I'm sure they'll be all over that and up front and center with it. No MSG. That's that's what I would expect from Chipotle. I, Me I too. I think very hot them. And, you know, they uh, look at their website. Uh, they are trying to go as non-GMO as they can, as quickly as they can. And then, like you said, uh, it kind of varies when you're that big. You've got 13, 1,400 stores nationwide. You have to source from a lot of different places, and you have better options um, in some than others, right? But overall, they are really pushing hard to uh, to eliminate GMOs and to source humanely raised healthier proteins and uh, animal-based products. And so uh, they're a great model, too. 
Right. For those of you wondering what the name of the restaurant is that Chipotle is opening, it's called the Shop House Kitchen. And I know certainly I'll be asking questions to them about the MSG and other things. Do you ask a lot of questions when you're at restaurants? <laughs> I'm afraid so. Um, oh, me too. <laughs> don't uh, don't worry know, about it. Uh, kind of, I do, and I think a lot of listeners to this show, a lot of guests in our show, we all do that. You know, you feel like, quote, that guy or <laughs> that person, you know, um, but obviously in our business, I'm always asking where the eggs came from. Sometimes I ask about the chickens because we do uh, sell broiler meat as well. And uh, there's a skit, uh, Portlandia. I don't know if you've yeah. seen the show. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it may have been from the first episode, and I haven't seen any, but um, where the, the couple is out at the restaurant and they're talking through the menu options with the waitress, uh, the, the server, and uh, you know they ask about the chicken in this chicken dish, and they end up bringing out the certificate. You know, this chicken, his name was Colin, and it's just a riot, but. <laughs> Uh, that is our customer base, you know, and it's also me personally and, and you know, uh, the, the crew at Model Farms, we're probably 35 people now, and uh, that's generally the way we all are. And, and uh, you know, it, you can laugh at it, but it's, uh, it's the way we need to be. It's quite a, an intimate thing to take something and put it into your own body when you think about it that way. And to just assume that it's okay or that it's healthy or, you know, uh, these companies care about us. They wouldn't serve us crap. It's going to, you know, long-term harm us. Well, um, the more you know, the more scared you get. And so I think that's a really righteous and important way to think, you know. And um, we're seeing it, uh, you know, I just say this from being in the industry, you're seeing it more and more um across the whole market, whether it's restaurants and food service, whether it's, you know, grocery chains. We're seeing a lot of interest from more mainstream grocers, and that's happening more quickly than I think we expected it to. But that's a great, great thing. This this awareness that's out there is it's like a wildfire. And, uh, again, you see it in non-GMO. You see it in concern for how animals are treated who, again, are working so hard for us, for our benefit. Um, you know, all this stuff matters. And, and guess what? Uh, it's going to have a, a long-term effect on how healthy we are and health care costs and all those sorts of things, too. Certainly quality of life. It is surprising me, too, at how quickly some of these conventional grocery stores are carrying more organic and sustainable ingredients. I think Safeway, Vons, they've been one of the best. And then speaking about restaurants and sourcing. If we're in Austin, can we find Vital Farms eggs at a lot of the restaurants there? You sure can. And actually, we've expanded beyond Austin into San Antonio, into Dallas and Fort Worth, and we hope later this year, Houston. Oh, nice. Um, we have three or four huge markets within three or four hours of each other here in Central Texas, right where we're based in the middle of all that. And so, um, yeah, it's it's it could be a food trailer selling a three dollar taco, or it could be um, you know some avant garde white tablecloth cuisine, or, or just a really conscious food uh, farm to table um, concept. But uh, definitely, we're in probably, and, and it's not just us. There's all sorts of produce producers, there's other egg producers, other poultry producers, and we support 
all of this. Um, it's uh, a hotbed for that. And so you'd probably be hard-pressed to, to avoid bottle-farmed eggs if you try. Uh, so we're um, excited about the, the future here in Central Texas as well as uh, some other regions too where we have where we have production. So um, yeah, that's what I look for when I go to restaurants too. Is, um, can I get good quality and not just good flavor? I love that. That's my kind of city. Well, we're going to have to go to our desserts in a second, but before we go, tell the listeners where they can find the website for Vital Farms. Vitalfarms.com. I think we have right now a nice video on the homepage that was something that we put together that features our farmers telling our story. And this was took us a few months to kind of get around to Georgia, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Texas to have our farmers, like I said, tell the story. We didn't script it. It is just what they wanted to say about how it is to be a producer with Vital Farms and doing things the right way as we see it. And so look for us out there on the web. Facebook, of course. I think we tweet every once in a while, but, uh, you know, I'm not as into that personally. I watch the Facebook every day, though, and have a lot of fun. I'm not into the tweeting as much either. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's great for what it is. Yeah, we're definitely out there, and look for us at grocery stores, and then hopefully more and more groceries as we go. And, and it's not just so. the Vital Farms name. And you can get the same eggs under the name Pasture Verde. That's an, a label we have for stores that uh, are not Whole Foods. And then some other labels, too, we're launching, like the Chicken Ranch down here in Texas, Alfresco Farms. You know, everything we do is pasture-raised and done as humanely as you can. All right. Well, Jason, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And can keep on doing the great work that you do. Aaron, man, I really appreciate it. Thanks for your support. And, and likewise, thank you. You're really doing great. Thanks for having us on again. It was my pleasure. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. This Saturday, the Institute of Domestic Technology is offering another one of its food crafting classes at the Zane Gray Estate in Altadena. In this class, you'll learn about making chevray, pickling, hard apple cider, and multi-sea crackers. To register, go to the website instituteofdomestictechnology.com. Also, this Sunday, the Culture Club 101 in Pasadena is holding its first annual summer party, consisting of barbecue, fermented foods, and live entertainment. John DeBruin of Day Day's Best Beef Ever will be there to grill some of the foods. There will also be a homemade crop contest, which everyone gets to judge. And if you're not already a member of the Culture Club 101, admission to the party includes a free one-month trial membership. To find out more about how to attend, visit cultureclub101.com. For a more detailed list of events, check out the Weston A. Price Pasadena community calendar at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of the Appropriate Omnivore. Next week, we continue with Independence Month as I interview Mike Konenian of Art is in Bread. For information on my guests, visit my website at appropriateomnivore.com. Thank you. Thank you.